This is Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, inviting you to give consideration to our Early Learning Academy as you look for a place for your pre-K, kindergarten, or first grader. We would love to have the opportunity to serve your child. We have outstanding facilities and a wonderful staff of certified teachers itching to serve you. Come by and share with us as soon as you can. Is God real? Are the stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the Word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God's Word? One of the distinctive characteristics of James' writing is that James uh, approaches uh, Christianity and our Christian walk from a very pragmatic point of view. James is not concerned so much about what we say as he is about what we do. That uh, uh, for our Christianity to carry any weight, it has to result in a changed behavior. Not just an occasionally changed behavior, but a consistently, permanently changed behavior. And so uh, he talks about living the faith more than just professing the faith. We went through the first 18 verses of James chapter 1 on last week. Uh, we want to pick up in verse 19 and finish chapter 1 today. Verses 19 through 27 from the message version. Post this at all the intersections, dear friends. Lead with your ears, follow up with your tongue, and let anger straggle along in the rear. God's righteousness doesn't grow from human anger. So throw all spoiled virtue and cancerous evil in the garbage. In simple humility, let our gardener, God, landscape you with the word, making a salvation garden of your life. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you believe. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are, what they look like. But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life, even out of the corner of his eye and sticks with it, is no distracted uh, scatterbrain, but a man or woman of action. That person will find delight and affirmation in the action. Anyone who sets himself up as religious by talking a good game is self-deceived. This kind of religion is hot air and only hot air. Real religion, the kind that passes muster before God the Father is this. Reach out to the homeless and loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from the godless world. Okay, you get the idea of what James is dealing with. Uh, the key verse in, in, in all of James, 
and in, in my opinion, I guess different people have different beliefs on this. The key verse in the entire book is the 27th verse of the first chapter. Pure religion, undefiled before God and the Father is this, that you care for the widows and the orphans in their affliction and keep yourself unspotted from the world. We had to memorize that when I was in seminary. I, I had to be able to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and say that verse. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, that you care for the widows and the orphans in their affliction and you keep yourself unspotted from the world. The first chapter of James deals with, 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 with the reality of adversity that affects all of us. James says, as, as we saw last week, right off the bat, count it as pure joy, count it as a gift when, 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 when trials and tribulations come your way. James suggests that God permits adversity to come our way to perfect us, to make us better, to bring us to a place where we rely less on us and more on him. Adversity reveals our deficiencies. Adversity shows us where we are not as good as we think we are. Adversity will cause us to realize that we're not as patient as we think we are. Amen. We're not as kind as we think we are. We're not as generous as we think we are. Adversity moves all the fluff out the way and gets us down to, to the brass tacks. And so James says, you shouldn't be upset when adversity comes your way, but you should recognize it as, as God's way of honing you and making you better than you were. Now that was last week. Now he moves into the area of how it makes you better, what it should cause you to do. When you get closer to God, things should become clearer as to what you can do, what you can't do, what you should do, what you should not do. Basically, the difference between the first half of James chapter 1 and the second half, or, or, or thereabouts, the second part of James chapter 1, has to do with the differences in our salvation process. We, 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 we spoke Sunday about the revolution of the gospel and the evolution of the gospel, the fact that salvation is not an event but a process. This idea that I got saved 30 years ago, that's where salvation had its start. But, but, but if all you can count on is what happened 30 years ago and, and there has been no improvement, no development since then, 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 then you got a problem. Now, what happened 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you pick the number that's right for you. What, what, what happened then is commonly called regeneration or rebirth. That, that, that's what theologians call it. Regeneration or rebirth. That's the beginning of the salvation process. But after that, your day-by-day -day walk with God is called sanctification. And that's the journey that you're on right now. And that's the longest part of your journey. 
Regeneration was an event that happened in the past. Sanctification is a day-by-day shift that, that takes place within your life where you incrementally grow less and less dependent upon self and more and more dependent upon God. And all of us are looking forward to the end when we go to be with God, and that's called glorification. So you got regeneration, sanctification, glorification, okay? What James is dealing with now is the sanctification process. And he's saying, I ain't going to give you no theological help with your sanctification process. I'm going to give you some practical help with your sanctification process. You're going through tough times. And when you're going through, have you ever been to a doctor's office and, and, and you're in pain and, and, and the doctor wants to explain to you medically what's going on with you? And he starts using five-syllable words to explain the, the things that are going on with you. And you're sitting there and you're trying to be polite and, and your eyes squint up and your head kind of cocks to the side because you, you don't understand what he's saying, but you don't want him to know that you don't understand what, what, what they're saying. And finally, you just want to ask, what's going to make me feel better? James says, I'm not going to go through the five-syllable words. That's what the doctor does. That, that, that's what the philosophers do. That's what the theologians do. I'm going to give you practical help. This is going to help you feel better. If you want to feel better, shut up and open up your ears. Look at what he says. Post this at all the intersections. Lead with your ears. Follow up with your tongue. And let anger straggle along in the rear. Listen up, shut up, and don't let your emotions have too much control of you. Okay, y'all can go out there and fight in the rain now because that, that's the whole lesson. Listen up. Shut up. And don't let your anger, don't let your emotions tie you up. Emotions are God-given. There's nothing wrong with being emotional. There's nothing wrong with having emotions. There is something wrong with allowing your emotions to dominate you and dominate your behavior. And apparently, James is responding to an issue that was pervasive within the churches. Remember, he's not writing to a particular church. This is not like Paul's writings where he writes to a particular church in Galatia or in Ephesus or in Thessalonica. Paul is writing a general letter to the churches uh, that existed at that time. And so apparently there was a pervasive problem of too much talking, too little listening, and too much emotion on display. Could that possibly be true even in the year of our Lord, 2019, where we talk too much, listen too little, and allow our emotions to get the better of us. Primarily, the emotion that he's dealing with here is anger. And I know that, that some people think anger in and of itself is a bad thing. Anger is not a bad thing if you're angry about the right thing. 
Turn back in your Bibles for a second to Mark chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Mark chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Then he, he being Jesus, went back in the meeting place where he found a man with a crippled hand. The Pharisees had their eyes on Jesus to see if he would heal him, hoping to catch him in a Sabbath infraction. He said to the man with the crippled hand, stand here where we can see you. Then he spoke to the people. What kind of action suits the Sabbath best, doing good or doing evil, helping people or leaving them helpless? No one said a word. He looked them in the eye, one after another, angry now, furious at their hard-nosed religion. Who's angry? Jesus. So if Jesus got angry, it helps us to know that there's nothing wrong with getting angry. It's about what causes you to get angry. The text tells you why he got angry. He got angry at the hardness of their hearts, at the stubbornness of their spirits, at their desire to have their way, even if their way was not God's way. So the problem is not getting angry. The problem is what causes us to get angry. That's problem one. Problem 1A, what do you do with the anger once you have it? How do you resolve it? How do you respond to it? How do you react as a result of it? In the case of Mark chapter 3, we stopped reading, but Jesus heals the man in spite of the fact that they didn't want him healed on the Sabbath, in spite of the fact that from their point of view, what he did was an infraction of the Sabbath tradition. Mind you, not the Sabbath law, but the Sabbath tradition. Because there were traditions that they had attached to the law that the law itself never included. Here, James says, lead with your ears, follow up with your tongue, let anger straggle along in the rear. God's righteousness doesn't grow from human anger. Read human as personal. Our problem is not getting angry. Our problem is we get angry about the wrong things. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. Our problem is not getting angry. Our problem is that we don't get angry enough about the right things. Because anger is a strong motivating force if it's about the right thing. If there is an injustice that is going on in the world and we don't get angry about it and we don't respond to it, then we are guilty of not doing what Christ would have us do. Our concern for one another, our love for one another should be so strong, should be so great, should be so powerful that when we see someone being wronged, our response should be to go to their defense. Yes. 
Not get angry in such a way as to want to destroy the other person, but, but get angry in such a way as to want to right the wrong. It is the responsibility, it is the job of the church to be constantly searching for wrongs that need correction. And when, when, when we can look at wrong and say it's somebody else's problem and say that, that, that's not for me to deal with, well, we're, we're actually exacerbating the wrong that's out there. Y'all remember the story of, uh, of David and Goliath? How does David end up on the battlefield? He's sent there by his father. He, he wasn't a soldier. He's sent there by his father to go see about his brothers and to bring goods and provisions to him. When he gets to the front line of the battle, he hears Goliath out there uh, boasting about the power of the Philistines and demeaning the God of Israel. And David is offended. But he's offended in two ways. He's offended, number one, at what Goliath is saying, but he's offended, number two, that ain't nobody from the from the Israelites willing to do anything about it. How long has this been going on? He comes out there every day. He comes out there every morning, comes out there every evening, makes the same thing. And y'all ain't doing nothing but just sitting here letting him talk like that. And his brothers get upset with him. What you gonna do about it? You the smallest thing around here. Ain't nothing you can do. He's a giant. He's a champion. He's killed so many, so many people. Ain't nothing we can do about it. David said, somebody's going to do something about it today. I'm going to do something about it right now. That has to be the attitude of the church. When we see wrongs, it has to be our job, our desire, our interest in correcting those wrongs, not because we want to bring any kind of notoriety to ourselves, but because we are called by God to stand up for him. It's part of our, it, it is part of our discipleship. It is part of our stewardship to not close our eyes and shut our ears and turn our attention away from wrongs, but to do what we can to correct those wrongs. Now, again, you have to be sure that your anger is a righteous anger and not a personal anger. Personal anger has a certain look to it. In, in case you didn't say, well, how will I know which is which? Here's some keys that might help you with that. People who are angry about personal stuff try to manipulate others. They want you to see things their way. They want you to agree with them. People who are angry about personal things try to intimidate others. They, 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 they try to make you feel guilty because you're not doing what they think you ought to do, what they want you to do, what's in their best interest. Do you know anybody who throws tantrums? <laughs> people
people who throw tantrums are angry about personal things. I can't believe it. How could they act that way? I'm mortified. I'm upset. I'm this, that, and the other. And then they want you to be angry with them. Not with them, but angry with them at whatever it is that they're angry about. Jesus tells a parable about two sons, and when, and, and when the lost son comes home and the older boy finds out that the lost son comes home, the older son is upset that, that, that the father has embraced him and allowed him back in and that they're celebrating. He couldn't go to his room and be upset by himself. He couldn't, he couldn't just go off and allow himself to work his, his way through his anger. Jesus says he places himself at the door of the house so that everybody who passes by has to see him angry. And, and I, I just have this picture in my mind of him sitting there with his arms folded and his shoulders hunched and a brood look on his face and a breathe <sighs> so that everybody who passed, what's wrong? Understand, that's, that's, the, that's the key. Asking them what's wrong, it opens the door. And out comes this flood of stuff. This happened, that happened, this hurt my feelings, and this, that, and the other. And I just can't believe that they acted that way. That's what personal anger looks like. Righteous anger ain't really interested in whether or not you agree. Because righteous anger is not about getting people on my side. Righteous anger is about correcting the wrong. So, if you want to see a difference between those who are personally angry and those who are righteously angry, ask yourself, are they trying to, to, to gain uh, supporters or are they trying to correct the wrong? Because if they're trying to correct the wrong, then more than likely the anger is a righteous anger. You have two choices. You can either surrender to your passions of the flesh, which will lead to death, or you can surrender to the Word of God, which has the power to deliver. Now, there's a reason why he attaches be slow to speak and be quick to listen with let your anger straggle along in the rear. Angry people talk a lot, and they talk about their hurt and what they want to do about their hurt. People who are really interested in correcting wrongs, they don't talk so much. They listen. If you listen to people, and if you listen long enough, and hard enough, and perceptively enough, people will tell you everything that you want to know. They don't even know that they're telling you everything that, that, that you want to know. But they'll tell you, because people love to talk. And they love to act like they know more than they know. If you listen with a discerning heart and with a prayerful spirit, then as you are listening, God is saying to you, pick up on that. 
Did you hear that? This is something you can fix. This is something you can do something about. This is, this is a, a, a help in how to respond to what it is that you're confronted with. And so, as you're listening and not talking, as you're listening and not just waiting for the other person to stop talking, that's another problem. These days, people don't listen so much as is they're waiting for you to run out of things to say. So that when you run out of stuff to say, they can put in what they want to say. And they haven't really heard anything that you have been saying. If you listen with discernment, if you listen with a prayerful spirit, God will open up opportunities for you to respond to the need in such a way that is consistent with your faith profession. Merely hearing God's Word is not enough. You have to also do His Word. Let me let you in on something else. Merely coming to Bible study ain't enough either. Merely coming to Sunday school is not enough either. Unless you are willing to do it, then you have a problem. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, tail end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Start with verse 21. I like, well, go back up to verse 15. Might as well start there and read it all the way down. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off some way or other. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. I swear I love the message version of the Bible. Knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my Father wills. I can see it now at the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, Master, we preach the message, we bash the demons, our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you are like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. You see that? That's Jesus talking. The point is, hearing the Word is not enough. Coming to Bible study is not enough. 
you have to be willing to employ, to work the word into your life. And for those of you who will sit here and say, well, I don't understand it all. Let's start with this. Do the parts that you understand. Instead of rationalizing by saying, I don't understand it all. There are some parts I'm sure you ain't got no problem understanding. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Y'all got a hard time understanding that one? Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's a rough one, right? That, that, that's hard for you to understand. As I have loved you, so should you love one another. Don't grab hold to stuff that, 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 that you might find difficult to grasp at this point. Grab hold. Don't do calculus. Do arithmetic. And don't say because you don't understand calculus, you can't do addition. You can't do subtraction. Because when you do that, you're making excuses. You know right and wrong. You know what God expects and what he does not. And what he expects is for you to live his word and not just talk his word. Those who say one thing and do something else, we, we, we have a name for them, don't we? That's the word. I was waiting on somebody to say it. We call them hypocrites. You don't want to be called a hypocrite, do you? Amen. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're a listener when you're anything but letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are, what they look like. But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life, even out of the corner of his eye and sticks with it, is no distracted scatterbrain, but a man or woman of action. That person will find delight and affirmation in the action. James now articulates two primary areas of application. One is personal. The second one is pervasive. Personally, James says that if you know what's right, if you look at the word, if you agree with the word, and then don't do it, then you have, not only are you a hypocrite, but you have sinned against God. The word exposes. The word reveals. And once you have been exposed to something, you can't go back and unexpose yourself. Once you've seen something, you can't unsee it. Once you've had something, you want that again. 
I'm looking at people who, 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 are, who are older than I am, and I remember these things, so I know you remember these things. Y'all remember when cars had roll-down windows? And, and, and you had to roll the window down with your arm, crank it down and crank it up. And, and, and if somebody got a car with an electric window, that was a fancy thing. That, that's right. That, that wasn't a car. That was an automobile. You remember when, car, when, when, when seat belts were considered to be a, 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 a luxury and not a necessity in a car? When I was a child, I ain't had no seat belts. We rode in the window of the car. And if my parents hit the brakes too hard, you came flying out the window of the car. They didn't run to no hospital. They just, you okay? And they kept right on. Seatbelts were considered to be a luxury. Electric windows were considered to be. I remember a car without power steering. Well, you had to have muscles to turn the wheel. And not every car has power steering. Every car has electric windows. You can't buy a car without seat belts. If you try to go back to any of that other, you can't go back to that. If somebody tried to sell you, I got a car I want to sell you. It ain't got no seat belts. It ain't got no air. It's a standard. Y'all don't want that except to put it up in a window somewhere where y'all can look at it, driving on the weekends for, for, for two blocks and then bring it back and get scared somebody's going to scratch the paint on it. That's not going to be your everyday automobile. You can't unsee what you have seen. You, can, you, you can't undo what you have been exposed to. That's what James is saying here. Once you have been exposed to the truth of the word, how can you go back and live any other kind of way? The word makes us better. The word reveals to us things that God wants us to know and to understand. And you can't look at that and then act like you didn't see it. You can't experience that and act like you didn't have an experience. He says that it has to change you. He says you don't even have to get a good look at it. He says, if you just get a glimpse of it out of the corner of your eye, that's how powerful it is. That's how, that's how life-changing it is. So, you have to recognize that, that, that application becomes absolutely necessary because you, you've been exposed, and once you've been exposed, you've been forever changed, and you can't go back to the way you were before you were changed. And then he says, anyone who sets himself up as religious by talking a good game is self-deceived. This kind of religion is hot air and only hot air. Real religion, 
the kind that passes muster before God the Father is this, reach out to the homeless and loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from the godless world. I told you when we started, that, that verse was etched into my brain when I was in seminary. Why is that verse so important? Widows and orphans is, is the way it reads in the King James Version and in some of the other uh, contemporary translations. Widows and orphans, widows and orphans, widows and orphans. Why is that significant? Because widows and orphans in the time of James represented the least. They represented the last. They represented those that were left out. They represented what we call today the marginalized. Widows were a reference specifically to women without husbands. I know the way that we use the term widow today, we use it universally. But technically, widow is a reference to a woman who has lost her husband. A man who has lost his wife was called a widower. Scripture doesn't say in the King James Version, in, in, in the authentic version for some of y'all, because some of y'all don't think it's, it ain't authentic unless it's from the King James. The word is not widower. The word is widow, and it is meant to speak to a specific person, women who had lost their husbands. And why was that important? Because in the culture of the, the first century church and before that, women could not manage their own affairs. They had to come under what, what people call today the covering of a man, either their father or their spouse or their brother. They had to come under, or their son. They had to come under the covering of a man in order to manage their affairs. So when women had no male family member, they were left to the discretion of the village in which they lived. Now, let me ask the women in here. Would you want to be left to the discretion of your neighborhood? Would you want to be left to the discretion of your community? If, if, if you go back and read uh, Paul's writing to Timothy in First and Second Timothy. He spends a lot of time talking about how to handle widows, putting them on the widow's list. And, and he talks about don't put women on the widow's list if they're too young. He says instead encourage them to get married so that their husbands can take care of them. All of this was an outgrowth of the culture of the time which was women could not manage their own affairs. Now, we can argue the right or wrong of that. Nobody, you're certainly not going to get me to say that it was right, but it was the culture of the time. So, when James says pure religion is caring for widows and caring for orphans, we all know what an orphan is. An orphan is a person who does not have a parent and has not reached an age of maturity. These are the least. 
These are the last. These are the left out. These are the marginalized. And so what James is really saying, if you expand the thought beyond widows and orphans, he's saying that the responsibility of the church is to care for the marginalized. If, if it was a male, once he reached the age of majority, then he could assume responsibility for the family. But if he was under that age, then you're absolutely right. It is the job of the church. It is the job of our faith. James says, remember, James doesn't deal with theology. James deals with pragmatism. James deals with practical reality, religion. James says practical religion means that when you see the least and the last and the left out and the marginalized, you do not turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to them. You respond to the need. And he, he connects it with those who talk a good game but don't do nothing. Somebody ought to do something about that. That's a crying shame. And somebody ought to do something. Are you somebody? It, pray about it. Understand. There is power in prayer. But 99% of us, when we say we're going to pray about it, translation, we ain't going to do nothing. Don't walk out of here saying he said prayer is nothing. That's not what I said. Put, put, put it all together. I said when we say I'm going to pray about it, that's our way of dismissing it. And moving on to something else. In the year of our Lord, 2019, women are still considered to be second class. I was having this argument with somebody the other day. Uh, women do the same job that men do and get paid less money to do it. And you can rationalize all you want. You can come up with it. Well, well, there's a reason for that. Yeah, there is a reason for it. You don't want to pay them what you pay. Men, there's a reason for it. The argument that, 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 that men have family responsibilities that women don't have, now you know that ain't true. You know that's a lie. Yes. We, we, we have so many different things where, where we still marginalize. And what I find interesting, since I'm on this point, what I find interesting is marginalized people will further marginalize other folk. Because in case you didn't know it, because everybody in here is black, right? I, 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 I ain't got none of my... Caucasian brothers and sisters in here, because we do have them here. But everybody in here is black, right? If you are black, you are marginalized. Now, you, you can be offended by that if you want to, and you can say, I don't care what, what, what you say, I'm not marginalized. I'm telling you the way society thinks of you. I'm not telling you what you should think of yourself. I'm telling you what society thinks of you. You are marginalized. 
How many degrees you got? You're marginalized with three degrees. How much money you got? You're marginalized with a whole lot of money. All you got to do is live, and you will find out just how marginalized you are. And yet, within this marginalized group of folk, we will further marginalize one another. Find that incredible. And yet, it is human nature. It is what we do. We don't learn how to correct past mistakes. We learn how to repeat past mistakes. It's in the Bible. The whole, the, the whole point of the church was to be the called out from those who had been called out. Remember, God called out Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, 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 and started an entire nation of people to be the called out from the world, that through them all the other nations of the world would be blessed. And Israel failed because Israel got caught up in Israel. And Israel forgot about God. And so Jesus comes along and Jesus calls out a church from the called out. And he says, the called out from the called out are going to do what the first called out didn't do. And yet by the time you get to the end of the New Testament canon, the called out from the called out are just as messed up as the called out were. And here we are in the year of our Lord, 2019, where marginalized folk are further marginalizing other folk. And yet the scripture says, real religion, the kind that passes muster before God the Father is this, reach out. And, and, and I want you to see, Peterson in the message version does not say widows and orphans. He says, homeless and loveless. See, it, 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 if you just stick with widows and orphans, then you say, well, that doesn't apply to me. But when he says homeless and loveless, you know who he's talking about, right? You, you, you understand who he's talking about. You understand the people that you come across every day who fall into this category, who are the marginalized. Yes, and our responsibility is to meet those needs. He doesn't say pray for. Read it again. He says reach out. Reach out means you got to move. You, you, Reach out involves action. It involves activity. Reach out. Reaching out means reaching beyond yourself. Understand, James is writing to the first century church, and the first century church sounds a whole lot like the 21st century church. 
Because in the 21st century, so much of the church is just about itself. Self-perpetuation, self-aggrandizement, self-satisfaction. And we're not about doing the work of reaching out. We're Baptists. Baptists call themselves evangelical Christians. Evangelism implies reaching beyond yourself. And yet, one of the biggest indictments against the Baptist church is that we fail to reach beyond ourselves. We fail to even put forth an effort to reach beyond ourselves. For many of us, the extent of reaching beyond ourselves is saying the doors of the church are open. And that's as far as we're willing to go. But James says, real religion means that you have to reach out to the homeless and the loveless. Okay, you don't want to reach out to the homeless? Certainly you ought to reach out to the loveless. Loveless, those who are not loved. Those who are put down. Those who are walked over. Those who are left behind. Those who are criticized even though they ain't done nothing to nobody. The loveless. Reach out to them in their plight, which means reach out to correct what's going on. That's our job. And when, when marginalized folk are more interested in further marginalizing than they are in bringing marginalized folk back into the mainstream, then we have failed in our responsibility to Jesus Christ. The church, the way Jesus set it up, is the most free, open institution there is. I really don't even like using the term institution to refer to the church. But Jesus says of the church, whosoever will, let him come. That, that, that there's no application process for the church. Anybody who will believe is welcome in the church. And yet, what are we welcoming them to if once we get them into the church, we, 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 we stratify and we separate? We have to reach out to the homeless and the loveless and the marginalized in their plight. Don't leave out the last part. He also says, guard against corruption. Keep oneself unspotted in the King James Version. Keep oneself unspotted from the world. In other words, not only do you have to do what's right toward others, 
but you have to make sure that you keep yourself straight in the process. Here's the problem with, 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 with a lot of us. When we do the right thing, we start thinking that the right thing is about us. And it's not. We are merely vessels. The one who is good is the one who chooses to use us as vessels. The fact that he chooses to use us doesn't make us right. It only means that, 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 that he has chosen to use that which is imperfect in order to accomplish his perfect will. And when things start to happen, when things start to move, and when things start to change, when things start to get better, don't listen to all them folk who start patting you on the back telling you how wonderful you are. Because that's where corruption starts. Don't listen to all them folk who say, can't nobody do what you do. Yes, they can. Somebody was doing it before you got here. And somebody gonna do it when you're gone. You think your spot can't be filled? Give it up for a second. The first minute, they gonna say, I don't know what we gonna do. The second minute, they're going to say, well, we need to look around and find somebody to, to do it. By the fifth minute, who was doing that before so-and-so was doing it? They're going to forget all about you. It is not about us. And that's where corruption comes in. Because, because that, that's what the world does. The world tries to teach us to, to honor ourselves when we're only here to do one thing. And that's to honor and lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 next week. May we stand together, please. This is Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, inviting you to give consideration to our Early Learning Academy as you look for a place for your pre-K, kindergarten, or first grader. We would love to have the opportunity to serve your child. We have outstanding facilities and a wonderful staff of certified teachers itching to serve you. Come by and share with us as soon as you can. We call it the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. Uh, the whole point behind the podcast was to give us the opportunity uh, to engage in meaningful conversation uh, with people about topics that we would find to be interesting and yet topics that would not normally fit within a Sunday worship experience or within a midweek Bible study. Let's face it, in, in, in a traditional church, uh, the, 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 the primary means of communicating that we have uh, is either through Bible study or through worship. Uh, and uh, we try to do the best that we can to speak to relevant issues, contemporary issues in those venues. But it's limiting. And, and uh, I wanted something that would break free from the fetters that worship and Bible study place on you. I wanted to be able to have 
a means, a medium by which we could discuss with a little bit more depth, at a little bit more length, the things that are going on in our community and discuss them with people who are making a difference in our community. Uh, I wanted the opportunity to explore. I wanted the opportunity to learn. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, I'm convinced of is that I don't know everything and, and that I need to know more than what I do. And in order for that to take place, then I need to expose myself to different ways of thinking, to different generations of thinking, uh, and to try to glean from others the best of their information that would help me to make myself better and to make Shiloh a better place. And so we decided that we would uh, launch the Thrive Podcast. And uh, we're now in our second year. I think that it has grown, it has expanded. Uh, and uh, I think that it's been a beneficial uh, platform for us to explore different ways of thinking and different ideas. Uh, and the feedback that we have gotten about it uh, has been nothing but positive. We want to expand on it. We want to build on it. We're, we've gone from one drop a week on Mondays to five drops a week, Monday through Friday. It allows us the opportunity uh, to get our midweek Bible study periods out on a different platform, to get our Sunday worship experiences out on a different platform. It helps the church to become more relevant and more regular in the lives of the people who listen and who uh, view the podcast. And so we're very happy about it. Uh, I don't think that we've begun to scratch the surface of what we can do with it. Much like anything, it's a new toy. We're taking it out, we're experimenting with it, trying to see what we can do with it and, and how we can make it most beneficial to us. But I think thus far, we're doing a pretty good job with it. This is Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, inviting you to give consideration to our Early Learning Academy as you look for a place for your pre-K, kindergarten, or first grader. We would love to have the opportunity to serve your child. We have outstanding facilities and a wonderful staff of certified teachers itching to serve you.